namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Okay, so this is the beginning of the second annual Tendal Forest Back to the Roots Forest Dhamma Retreat. And the tradition that I ordained in is called the Forest Tradition. And so this is an appropriate setting for developing Dhamma practice. When we talk about the Dhamma, or Dharma, the origin of the word simply means nature. And here we find ourselves in the midst of nature. Or learning how to live in harmony with the laws of nature. And learning how to live in harmony in such a way that there is absolutely no friction. And then sense of feeling alienated or ill at ease completely disappears. And so when the Buddha came along, there was the Dhamma. All the different teachers had their own Dhamma. And when he came along, his teachings were called the Buddha Dhamma. And so still, in this day and age, the real teacher is not me, or it's not uh, the Pali Canon, even though I have tremendous respect for the Pali Canon. The real, the real teacher is coming back to the Dhamma, nature. Now, being in a setting like this, it helps. There are the laws of Dhamma nature to be found in, in every situation, of course. But if you're in a situation, a place, an, an environment uh, which is naturally peaceful, then that helps to kind of bring the, uh, the wavelengths of our mind into a, a calmer state already. So when the Buddha would encourage his followers, his teachers, and encourage anyone that he taught to go meditate, especially when they were going off in retreat, he would encourage them to go off into the forest. He didn't say, go to the pub and study the Dhamma. You know, go, <laughs> go to the rock show and, and learn how everything's impermanent. You know, I mean, the laws of Dhamma are there too. But if you're out sitting by the edge of a lake when the sun is setting, then somehow the mind is more easily receptive to those timeless truths. And so uh, we're fortunate to have the opportunity to come out and be in the midst of the forest. And part of the forest tradition is simplicity. And when you try to simplify things in your life, then you have to give up certain things. You know? 
And there's a lot of uh, peace in that giving up, in, in simplifying. But sometimes you have to give up a little comfort as well. And so staying outside, being intense, dealing with um, ticks, insects, mosquitoes, uh, being exposed to the weather, uh, these are things which are teachers in and of themselves. And the simplicity of simply living in a tent, literally getting back to the roots, you know, there's a, there's a real beauty in that. Now, this retreat is not going to be a theoretical retreat. There's not going to be a whole lot of theoretical information imparted. Because we have enough knowledge already in our lives. We have enough information. And not only is it important to make our lives more physically simple, but it's important to make our inner landscape as simple as the forest and the lake. So what's much more important than a lot of information is experience. It's like a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, direct experience is worth a thousand pictures. Well, when you come to the retreat, notice whatever expectations you might have. You might have heard exaggerated stories about storms. Last year we had such beautiful weather. It rained a little bit. Wind blew a little bit. But most of the people actually did survive. <laughs> there was a little a bit of an attrition rate, but you know that's to be expected when you're out in the forest. And uh, we'll talk about death later. And some of you might have heard, you know, exaggerated worries about there being bears in the area. I don't think you really have to worry about that. <laughs> Probably just don't don't let the worrying mind fool you into thinking there are actually big furry animals out there with claws and teeth. Now, actually, uh, we're, it's considered to be part of the ideal conditions for Dhamma practice if you have some large, dangerous animals in the area because it helps you to be alert. And so throughout all of the day, everything that we're doing throughout the day, we develop what's called sati sampajanya, uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension, imbued in all of our physical activities. So everything we do 
you know, really try to develop this mindfulness. And when we talk about mindfulness, again, it's not just a mindfulness of the edge of your nose tip or your, your breath or your meditation word. Or, uh, there are times when that's, you can reduce the scope of mindfulness just to a very small area. But a lot of the time it's good to have a, a very clear all-around mindfulness. And so when you're walking through the woods, being mindful is, is not necessarily just paying attention to the, your nose tip because you might trip over something. Right? You might step on a living being. You might run into a bear. Right? So being out in the woods, being, being mindful means having this all-around mindfulness. Right? All-around mindfulness. And... Uh, you're mindful of your physical postures, sitting, walking, standing, washing, being silent, mindful of everything that's arising within your own mind when you're walking through the forest, or when you're sitting in the forest. So to have conditions like this, it would, you'd have to say this is a result of our past good karma. You know, we're very fortunate in many ways to have the opportunity to practice the Dhamma. Because a lot of the people in the world just don't have that opportunity. You know, the fact that uh, we are, have been invited to stay in a, a beautiful location, the fact that uh, we have enough free time in our lives so we can take a, a week off to focus on something which is very important, profoundly important, but not, in many cases, urgent as many of the other things in our lives. And yet we have this opportunity to, to be able to take this time off. And I was very fortunate. And if you're really looking at the big picture, just to have been born a human being and to come in contact with teachings that can, in some way, wake us up out of the daily round of existence. There's a lot there to be grateful for. And we've had a whole list of people who have already supported our retreat that we can also be grateful for. You know, the first is, is uh, you know, the reason we have this, this opportunity right now is, is because of Mr. Tyndall in the back. And uh, he's uh, uh, such a a warm-hearted, generous fellow this world rarely sees. Yeah. And he, uh, he had a prophetic dream about the bear, too. <laughs> so we say, so I feel a lot of gratitude for, for John allowing us to use his cabin, uh, his area, and to everyone else in the lake, most of whom are his relatives, who 
are in their way also supporting us and are trying to be very conscious of how much noise that they make. And I said, well, we'll try to be very conscious of how much noise we make, too. <laughs> except for that gong at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> okay. And other people who have already supported the retreat in their own quiet way, Jane Kirsten Johnson came here, worked for three days, uh, as part of the, the service to help uh, prepare the grounds for the retreat, working on that in driveway, uh, clearing the forest. Also, uh, Lena Kelpsate and Melissa Arik came and did a lot of work uh, around the land, so we say thank you to them. Uh, John priests are uh, cook for the first half of the retreat and then he will hand the baton over to Damon halfway through the retreat and also thank you to Gail Prest who uh, apparently cooked a lot of the, the things that are prepared including those cookies and thank you to Scott who uh, I'm very sorry that he's not here, especially under the circumstances. His beloved cat is uh, is very, very sick, and he felt that he couldn't leave his cat at this time, and so he had to cancel at the last minute. Thank you to Amy for all the registration work, and thank you to Matt huh, for making our lives very simple and easy. And most of all, last but certainly not least, uh, thank you to Mark, Mark Nunberg, because this retreat, again, pr probably would never have come about if Common Ground hadn't existed, and Common Ground probably never would have come about in the same way as if Mark hadn't put all that years of work into it. Now, one of the things that I want to emphasize a lot, especially in the beginning, is for people just to relax. And if you come out here, you know, for, for the first 24 hours or so, you'll notice your attitude towards what we call right effort. And notice your attitude towards meditation. And instead of trying to dive in there with kind of a uh, teeth-gritting attitude, just, just relax. Just learn how to relax. Just allow the environment to sink in, relaxing both the body and the mind, until you find that balance. If you start to become too relaxed, then you may lose clarity of mindfulness. But that balance is very important to, to find. That's that point of balance. Because what we call samadhi, I think for many people, the translation of concentration can lead to a misunderstanding of what it is. I mean, samadhi is, is essential for developing uh, depth in Dhamma practice. 
But samadhi is not a, a concentration of trying to squeeze the mind on your meditation object or force your mind onto a meditation object. Sometimes we might think of concentration as you know really trying to get it down to one point, especially when it's translated as one-pointed concentration. <laughs> Naturally, you might <laughs> think of concentrating on one point. But uh, you know, in the Pali, it's, it's, it's an eka, which means like one. So it's like making your mind one. Is unifying the mind. The mind becomes unified. And how the mind becomes unified is that it's just not distracted anymore. When the mind is distracted and diffracted and scattered, then it doesn't have any energy, it doesn't have any clarity. So just relaxing. Just allow yourself to relax and the mind just kind of clears out a bit. It expands a bit from the, our, our narrow blinkered normal range of focus. But just allow it to expand and be one. And that's when when samadhi really starts to be more and more beneficial. And that's when, when insight starts to become not something that you kind of try to force through practicing a technique. You can't kind of you can't kind of do it like a machine. You know, you do your technique and the insights are supposed to come out, start, start spewing out insights, you know, in a, in a nice, neat sequence. You know, that's just not the way nature works. But you just allow the mind to relax. Allow your body to relax. And as you do that, and you're practicing clarity of awareness, then you strike this nice balance. Hmm? And sometimes people wonder, well, what's the difference between samadhi and meditation? Or samadhi and, and uh, mindfulness? Because um, you really need both for the mind to be in balance. If you have a lot of samadhi, but not very much mindfulness, it is possible to go into very peaceful states of mind where you're not asleep, but there's hardly any self-awareness. And that can be very relaxing, but not very useful for developing wisdom or insight. And it is possible to have a mindfulness, a sort of a, a refined mindfulness, you know, being aware of this and that and that, but without any real stability of mind, so that uh, it's just too jumpy. You know, where this and where that and where this and where that and, and you know, noting, 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 and then, but it's not very peaceful, and it doesn't really lead to uh, being able to, to to deeply see into one thing. So finding that balance, which is relaxed, calm, serene, and at the same time very aware, very aware of what's going on. So now, fortunately, that's a very pleasant thing. You know, it, it's it's nice that 
that when the mind is in balance, it's actually very peaceful and happy and pleasant and serene. So, you know, watch that old Christian society guilt complex come up. If you start to kind of just enjoy yourself, relaxing, you think, oh, no, this can't be right. <laughs> no. Manager said, keep your, keep your nose to the grindstone. <laughs> this, is, this is too nice. It's just sort of like relaxing by the lake being aware of being relaxed by the lake. But you might be surprised that just relaxing out of nature uh, can yield some, some very nice results. And you, you don't even have to think about the results, you know, don't think in terms of gaining anything. You know, at, at first, just think in terms of Ah, take a deep breath. Allow the serenity of the forest to sink in. Now, generally, a lot of our attention, what mindfulness that we have, is directed towards external duties and responsibilities. And for the purpose of meditation, we're kind of uh, taking that energy and, and focusing more inward. Hmm? If you want to at least temporarily think in, in, in a dualistic manner, rather than focusing on external things, focusing more on the internal realm. But you know that it doesn't just happen automatically just because we... Uh, decide it. It should be that way, or because we start the first day of a retreat. It's not like a light switch that you can just turn on and off. So you can expect that it will be gradual process. And it's not a process, process that can be forced or rushed, but it can be encouraged. You give yourself permission just to sit down the various burdens. Just set down the responsibilities because whatever you've had to take care of before the retreat, you've either take care of, taken care of it already or it's too late. So you might as well just set it all down. And that's a great gift to yourself, not to, not to force yourself to worry about things. And then that becomes a habit. We get used to setting things down, setting burdens down. The more we set things down, the lighter our heart becomes. Now in putting forth effort in meditation, It's a bit like the posture of our body. When you sit in meditation, if it's a, a useful posture, then it's going to be both alert and upright, at the same time very relaxed. I remember when I first started 
doing long retreats. My, my first real long retreat, boy, I was told what the right posture was and I held it that way like stone. <laughs> and it was, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't relaxed. And I was able to maintain that, but there was also a lot of pain in the body from doing that. And so within a posture which is like physically balanced, from the top of your head right down to the base of your spine, you know, that helps to develop this mental balance. And when you have a physical posture that is stable, you know, if you're sitting on your meditation cushion, you know, it's helpful to sit on the front part of your meditation cushion, the front edge of it. And that helps to um, tilt the pelvis forward a bit and open up your chest. And then if you have your knees solidly on the, on the cushion, on the mat, so then you have this very stable posture. And that helps to develop uh, stability of mind and inner stability. And then within this posture, you allow all your muscles to relax. You allow your body to relax. And that helps your mind to relax. Because if you find you, if you're hunched over, your muscles actually have to work harder. And even, even just hunched over a bit will tend to, tend to give rise to more thinking. So it's helpful to have a, a posture which is um, the spine is, is aligned. It will have a natural curve to it. Like you tuck your chin in just a little bit, it straightens the back of the neck. And then you allow your shoulders to drop, your hands form a, a nice mudra. Then you can just allow everything to relax. Now with the hands in your lap, it is helpful if you have a precise way of holding your hands. Now the most common way is to have one hand on top of the other with the thumb tips touching. Because if your hands are too loose in your lap, then that will tend to engender um, too loose of a mind state. Right? But if your hands are in a nice precise mudra, you know, position, which we call a mudra, then it takes uh, just enough mindfulness and energy to keep that mudra going that it helps the whole process of meditation. And if you want to relax, then you can rest the mudra on your legs. And if you find that you're a bit sleepy, then raise your mudra up a bit around your belly button, off your lap. Because just that little effort that it takes to hold your hands up and hold them precisely would be enough to bring energy into the whole system. So the effort then is, is a mirror of that physical balance. 
we you know we talk about uh, the four right strivings in Buddhism, you know, like the four right efforts. And yet the word striving can bring up a whole lot of baggage, kind of striving in the world or striving to succeed or striving to compete or you know. And those type of attitudes uh, are counterproductive. So the type of effort that we that we put forth is like making the effort to relax, making the effort to to bring the mind back to the present moment. Over and over and over again. And that does take persistence. It does take effort. If we don't have any effort, if we're just relaxing without the proper mindfulness and effort, then we just go off on a daydream and it may be seven days before we really wake up from that daydream. So that's a balance that we all need to experiment with and um, generally the mind is of the nature that it will keep going out of balance and it takes a certain vigilance, a watchfulness to see where is it out of balance now and just making that slight adjustment. Sometimes it's just a very slight adjustment that brings it into balance. If we're kind of worked up or agitated or restless, then what brings it into balance is not like a, you know, getting really tough with ourselves, but just telling yourself, just relax, being very gentle, just take a few deep breaths, just be serene. If our mental state is falling out of balance on the side of becoming drowsy and sleepy and losing clarity, then it can be helpful to uh, approach the meditation with a bit more energy, like focusing a little bit more clearly. Uh, if you're repeating a word internally and you repeat it with more enthusiasm. If you're doing walking meditation, then then doing walking meditation a bit faster. All of these things can help to bring the mind into balance. Now with walking meditation, it, it's helpful if you find one place that you can go and have a, a relatively straight, flat path that's approximately 25 steps long, maybe 30 steps long. Anywhere between 20 and 30 steps is good. With a clear beginning and a clear end. And it's also helpful if the path doesn't have debris in it. So we have rakes here if you want to uh, make a nice, straight, clean path somewhere. Um, a very good place is probably just along that road by the compost pile, you know. You understand. And, and if you have a nice regular walking path, then pretty much whatever you're doing while sitting meditation, you can do while doing walking meditation. 
the exception being very deep states of samadhi. So with walking meditation, again, it's a balance. It's in, in some ways, it's uh, just being out there, learning how to walk peacefully, calmly in nature. But at the same time, it's not like a nature walk where you're looking at all the birds and the leaves and looking around. It's a very focused way of just walking back and forth, walking back and forth, and learning how to do that simple posture as meditation and maintaining a continuity from what was going on during the sitting meditation. You just keep that continuity going. You know, as soon as you get up from the sitting meditation, it's not like the meditation's over. It's just that the posture is beginning to change a bit. When you hear the bell, then you, then the, the, the getting up is getting up meditation. And as soon as you take your first step, you're already beginning walking meditation. And then if you know that you have one spot that you do your walking meditation, then you don't have to think a lot. You don't have to wonder, well, where am I going to do walking meditation now? You just go to that spot. You just keep the meditation going. And again, just walk back and forth and back and forth. Now, it's impossible to live a human life without experiencing a combination of pleasure and pain. And when we come to a, do a meditation retreat, then there will be times that we will experience discomfort. And so what is important is not, not how can we, how can we strive to run away from discomfort or minimize discomfort. You know, that, that's not an end in itself. But what is really important is just to understand the nature of pleasure and pain, comfort and discomfort, and our relationship, our attitude towards that. So if you're sitting in meditation and discomfort starts to arise, then the first thing you do is just ignore it. You, know, you just stay with your meditation object. For example, if, if it is your breath that you're focusing on and discomfort starts to arise in your knee, your ankle, you know, just, uh, just be patient at this point and, and um, you don't yet move the body because learning how to keep the body still will eventually help to still the mind. And if you then sit longer, then uh, the pain or discomfort becomes a bit more pronounced. And then again, still don't move, but just, just try to be patient, because this quality of patience is so important in life. And we have this opportunity while we're sitting meditation and our knees or our back or our ankles are getting a bit sore, and we can just learn how to be patient and say, well, that's uncomfortable, or I, I wish it wasn't quite that way, or I wish that pain would go away, and so, well, that's just a thought. But there are many things in life, or many experiences in life, that are uncomfortable. But if we can learn how to be patient with, with the discomfort in our knees, then we can learn how to be 
patient with all the other forms of discomfort in our life. So it's a practical teacher. And then if the pain gets even stronger, then you can make the conscious decision, okay, I'm going to take the awareness off of my meditation object, my primary meditation object, whether that be the breath or whatever, and just focus on the sensations of what we normally call pain. And then look into it and say, well, where exactly is it located? What is it that I call pain? Without, without even thinking of it as pain, just go directly to the sensations and try to get as close to reality as possible. And then notice if there's a, a movement of resistance, not wanting to feel that sensation, or wanting to run away from it. And just study that. And sometimes the investigation of those sensations it becomes so interesting that you forget that it actually hurts. And the sensations haven't changed, but we haven't uh, created a whole another problem around it by calling it pain and saying that it's bad and saying that it shouldn't be that way or I should do something. We just learn how to understand and be with it and be patient with it and not kind of a grit your teeth patience but a, a patience of just being peaceful with it. But as long as you have enough mindfulness that you can practice in this way then any amount of pain is not a problem. But it, we all have our limit of how much mindfulness we have. And so at some point, then the scope of the discomfort or the pain becomes stronger than our mindfulness, and then we can't observe it objectively anymore. And then, um, then at that point, it's better to mindfully shift your posture because it's not beneficial just to force yourself to endure discomfort just for the sake of enduring. That, that's not beneficial wisdom. So at that point, if you, if you really can't use it as a meditation object, uh, then no problem. You just mindfully shift your posture and begin again. So there's no easy way to measure success in meditation. And sometimes what we think is success or failure might be misleading. Some of the meditations that maybe didn't seem so peaceful actually were very valuable because we were making the right effort. We were sticking with it. 
And maybe some meditations which did seem peaceful maybe were less valuable because our mind was wandering a lot. So these whole areas of what we consider successful and, and not successful, they're not such useful uh, things to gauge our meditation with. They're not such useful concepts because they can lead to uh, either a strengthening of the ego if we think it's successful or um, uh, a lack of self-esteem if we if we think it's uh, not successful. So a much better way to look at it is, okay, well, what's happening right now? And whatever is happening, then that's it. And each retreat is different. And whatever you've done in past retreats, whatever experiences you've had in past retreats, it won't be quite the same this retreat. So to whatever extent possible, it's good to go into a retreat with no expectations. Say, whatever happens is fine. Sometimes the drawback of being a long-time meditator is that we we think we know what's going to happen. We know the process very well. But that can also be limiting. If we, if we think we, we know what's going to happen, we can kind of create that to a certain degree, but then that can... Sometimes uh, we can miss out on new things arising. So whatever happens this retreat, you know, I don't have any idea what's going to happen. And if I don't have any idea what's going to happen, well, you probably don't either. So that kind of unknowing and being at peace with that unknowing and just trusting that unknowing of what's going to happen, then there's a certain realness about that. And that's really what the Dhamma is all about. It's about getting real. So I offer this for your reflection this evening. We have a little time before uh, the end of the evening. We have about a half an hour left. So it, well, we can meditate. If people want to just stretch their legs, you're welcome to. As Matt mentioned, it's polite to stretch your legs uh, in a direction other than the, the shrine. Um, but uh, you're certainly welcome to stretch your arms and legs a bit, and then we can continue on with meditation until 9 o'clock.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.